Chapter 40 After we left the farm shop with our various goods, we made quick work of the remaining half an hour or so of the journey. We sang along to the proclaimers for the 500th time, so we didn't lose our minds listening to it. We laughed at the corny jokes the radio presenters uttered after we had turned to the radio for solace after the millionth reiteration of the song. We wound the windows down and let the wind bluster through our hair, whipping it around us. It was a picture-perfect montage of a road trip. Velma gently eases the beat-up car into a road lined with identical suburban homes. They've all got winding paths up to a small porch, upon which is some form of furniture, be it a rocking chair, a swing seat, or a bench. They've all got two stories, presumably with a loft extension given the fact that most have two dormers on their roofs, and the walls are clad with a variety of shades of blue sliding. Each lot is neatly defined by the white picket fence that signifies their boundaries. Neat, trimmed bushes and trees line that garden a little too perfectly, possibly the result of some rule defined in the homeowners association. Number 43 is the one Velma parks in front of, unclipping her seatbelt and making sure her minimal makeup was still passable, it was. She reached into the back seat and pulled out our things, handing mine to me, ready? Yep. Balloons hang on the windows and a happy birthday, a banner, decorated with a rainbow of streamers, hangs over the front door. Something inside instinctively knows that Shaggy is responsible for these decorations. We can already hear music playing from outside, and I see a few curtains twitching in the other homes in response. The music only gets louder when a man, head turned to shout something back into the house, opens the door. I didn't recognize him until he turned to face us, which revealed his iconic blonde hair now slightly darker and speckled with gray, and cravat. Fucking Fred, of course, he never lost the cravat. In response to his shout, a small child bounds towards us, leaping towards Velma. The small child's pigtails flutter behind her as her yellow dress flickers like a flame. Velma drops everything she was carrying, and I have to scramble about catching them all before they break while Velma whirls, I presume, Alexia round in the air before pulling her into a hug. Auntie Velma. Alexi joyously cries, you came. How could I miss your seventh birthday, Poppet? While they're having their mini reunion, I manage to wave at Fred, who doesn't seem to recognize me at all. Hi, I don't believe we've met. I'm Fred, Alexi's father, he says in his polite voice, the one that's a lot posher than his actual voice, are you and Velma. Fred, what the he dash? Thankfully, Shaggy, who comes up behind him and wraps an arm around Fred's waist, recognizes me and stops me from cursing in front of their, nearly, seven-year-old daughter, hi, Daphne, do you want to come in? Let me help you with those bags. I brush past Fred, who like Velma predicted, 
was too busy picking up his jaw from the floor to help. To add fuel to the fire, I can't help but pat his shoulder, nice to see you haven't changed. To be fair to him I don't think that was lust or even an old crush, he does seem wholly devoted to his marriage by the looks of things, it's probably just the shock of seeing someone after so many years. Are they? I hear him whisper to Shaggy, you didn't tell me who Velma was bringing. Not officially. And I did, you just weren't listening. Shaggy hisses back, jokingly pushing shoving away. They weren't exactly arguing, which they used to do all the time, but they did remind me immensely of their younger selves, just in slightly larger bodies. I don't recognize anyone else at this party. There are occasionally one or two people, but only people I knew in passing, never anyone I was friends with. Alexi seems to be in the same boat as me, or she had been instructed to befriend me, I don't know, and she took me by the hand to show me something. Shaggy also handed me an armful of presents to take up to Alexi's room, saying that he'll get me something to drink. She leads me through the living room, where a gaggle of people stood around drinking wine and talking, the dining room, in which a table was piled high with food, the kitchen, where a couple embarrassedly broke apart from a makeout session although they started up again before we even left the room, upstairs to a brightly lit bedroom. It's clearly Alexi's room, given the toys and the child's bed, and I have to stoop a little to not bang my head against the roof, it's a loft room. After I arrange the presents in a corner of the room, Alexi leads me to the small children's sofa by one of the windows, instructing me to sit down on it. I do so, my knees uncomfortably high given the fact that this sofa is not built for someone adult-sized like me. I glance out the window and marvel at the view of the sea. As I rest my chin in my hand, I feel my elbow know something is over. Looking down, I see a row of smooth gray rocks, arranged from biggest to smallest left to right. Next to the smallest stone is the blue rabbit. It's faded since the last time I saw it in person, worn with years worth of love and adoration. I thought I'd be more hurt to see it here but something about the embroidered smile told me that it was happier here anyway. It's not like Maddie could play with it anymore, anyway. The sight of the rocks, however, did remind me of the rock I'd put into my pocket last night. I don't know why, but I brought it here. I pull it out of my pocket and place it on the windowsill next to the other rocks. Size-wise, it slots straight into the middle of the line of rocks, with stones three either side of it. Alexi returns from her rummage around her chest of costumes by her bed holding a felt roast turkey hat and a Santa hat. Laughing, I put on the turkey hat, noting aloud that it takes my outfit to the next level and head back downstairs with her. Of course, after the staying late in the library incident, Mum grounded me for two weeks, which included using the landline to tell my friends about what I knew. 
Why is it always during the most important moments mom steps in and stops me? Thankfully, it wasn't on a Friday, but rather a Thursday, so I still had time to tell the gang about what was happening before it was too late. That night, I formulated a plan for the next day, hoping and praying that the guys will just go along with it, else it won't work. First thing that Friday morning, I bolted out of bed, slung clothes on my back, shoveled breakfast into my mouth, and waited anxiously by the door. Maddie trailed downstairs after me, rubbing her eyes. Her worn and loose pajamas, my old ones that Mum had given her along with a few other items after finding out that Maddie didn't have much for a wardrobe, hung limply around her frame. Morning, she mumbled sleepily, pouring herself some cereal, Why are we awake at 5 a.m., Belma? We need to get ready for school as soon as possible. I told her, trying my best to hide my anxious urgency, I really need to talk to the guys about something. Hmm. Maddie went about her morning as usual, not at all bothered by my erratic behavior, as though she had seen this all before, even though she's only lived here for a little over a month. She had changed quite a bit since we first met. Maddie was no longer like glass at that point, and even though it was still difficult to determine her expression most days, it no longer felt like she was trying to hide everything from me. She stopped eating her meals in her room and had started joining us for family meals, she had opened up more about school life, and she'd even managed to hold a conversation with her social worker, Bobby. According to Bobby, Maddie had only ever given minimal responses to his questions in the past and had been fairly uncooperative despite his numerous attempts to befriend her. She hadn't, however, stopped talking about her dad. He's really strong, you know? She said that morning, when he's in a good mood, he likes to throw me about in the air. I bet he could lift you too, Velma. I wasn't exactly listening to her talk, my eyes were glued to the window, ears strained for the slightest indication of Fred's approaching van. Once it appeared from around the corner, I rushed Maddie through the last few steps of her routine, pushed her out of the door and into her seat in the van, locked the front door and scrambled beside Maddie. Fred, you need to drop me off at the library and then you have to go to the city hall. I garbled out one homogeneous mess of indistinct syllables, adding, after we dropped Maddie off at school. What? Maddie blurted, no. You guys ditched me when you went to the house, and you promised I could go with you to the next one. But Maddie, you shouldn't be bunking off school, Daphne hesitantly argued, your education is really important. You're bunking off. Why can't I? Maddie, somehow, managed to stare down four 15-slash-16-year-olds and a dog into doing what she wanted. Fred pulled over so that I could use one of the few telephone booths in Crystal Cove to call Maddie's school to tell them she was sick and would be unable to come in. 
I then called our school to tell the receptionist that we were doing impromptu research on the goings-on of City Hall with Fred's father and so we won't be in school that day. And with that, we headed off to the library. As we drove there, I explained the plan to them, even giving Maddie an honorary role, so she didn't feel left out. I told them as much of the mystery as they needed to know, saving some parts for the grand reveal. How come Maddie gets an honorary role yet I'm still being trialed? Fred whined, I've driven you all everywhere you needed to be, haven't I? I've been part of Mystery Incorporated basically since it started. That's because Maddie was polite and asked nicely. Shaggy told him rather condescendingly, she said please dot. Did you say please? Daphne asked her, which was the exact question I was going to ask. Sure. Maddie shrugged. The library had only just opened when we arrived, so I scrambled for my things and clambered out of the van. The meeting's in half an hour, but it'll take me a little while to find everything and get there in time, so I need you to distract them before it goes ahead, got it? Got it, Daphne repeated, slamming the van door shut as Fred, rather recklessly, forced his foot down on the accelerator to send the van flying down the road towards City Hall. Like a fish to water, I'm in my element. Most of the things are easy enough to find, they were exactly where I'd left them the night before, but one item, in particular, seemed to have disappeared, the record from the night of the snowstorm. It wasn't with the other vacancy documents from the era, which is where I'd returned it to, and neither were the photocopy editions that the librarian had made for me. I checked under the filing cabinet in case it had slipped underneath, but nothing. I checked the other years, just in case someone had accidentally put it back in the wrong place, but, again, nothing. Glancing at my watch, I saw I had maybe five minutes, if that, before the meeting started. Left with no choice, I went to talk to the librarian to ask him to make a new photocopy for me. I'm afraid I can't do that at the minute, he said sadly, Mr. Hyde borrowed the original last night, not long after you left actually, so it's not currently available. He promised to return it by three o'clock today, though, so if you come back then I can make you another copy? Quickly thanking the librarian, I gathered my things and started running towards City Hall, praying between painted breaths that I would make it in time. Chapter 41 Alexi leads me back downstairs, the too big for her Santa hat bobbing up and down with her steps. I hear Fred opening the door again and calling for Alexi to come to greet whoever it is. With a quick smile at me, Alexi strands me on the stairs, rushing off to see the newcomer. I wonder if they make Alexi greet every single one of these guests. That seems a bit extreme, given that Alexi didn't seem to really know a lot of the people as we had walked past them. From the hallway, I hear excited babbling, a couple of barks, and some cooing. I'm sorry I'm late, Fred. 
I had to go pick these guys up from the vet, I hear a voice saying as they approach. The person is turning their head away from me so I can't get a good look at their face, but their electric blue hair is a dead giveaway. Do any of Cheese's puppies take your fancy, Lexi? All of them, she says to Ray, who chuckles in response. He turns around, and we come eye to eye. Or close enough, I'm actually a little taller than Ray. Oh, hi, he says cheerily as he takes off his coat and hands it to Shaggy, who disappears off with it, what are you doing here? I could ask the same of you, I reply, matching his blithe tone, whipping the turkey hat off my head and behind my back. Alexi glares at me from behind Fred's back, furious that I'd taken it off. I stick my tongue out at her to try and make amends, but she still seems somewhat irate. It's only until one of the puppies boops her hand that she smiles once again. Oh, you already know Alexi's brother, Daphne? Fred asks, battling away Alexi's requests to adopt all of the puppies as he steps towards us, that's great, the two of you make yourselves comfortable, I'm going to put the dogs upstairs before they cause any more chaos. There's food and drinks through that hall over there. We start making our way to the kitchen, the lure of snacks is, naturally, irresistible. You're Alexi's brother? I ask cautiously, treading carefully to not overstep his boundaries, as in you were also. No, we have the same biological parents. I went into the foster care system before she was born, so I didn't know she even existed until I went about looking for my biological parents after I aged out of the adoption system, he explained nonchalantly. I found Alexi as well as three older half-siblings, but none of them have returned my calls so I've never met them in person. They're all grown up now, I can understand them wanting to put their pasts behind them. Why are you here, though? Could you not ask for Fred and Shaggy's help, though, if you aged out of the system? I ask, ignoring Ray's question for now. I can't help it, the journalistic instinct is to learn more about any given situation, regardless of social norms. Life is tough if you don't have anything or anyone to fall back on. You'd think they'd at least offer you a place in their home since you're basically family. It's not like they can't afford it. They offered, but I refused. If you don't have anything to fall back on, you simply don't fall, he smiles. Now, why are you here again? Alexi's godmother, Velma, invited me. I explain, she's one of the people we went to the vet with, remember? Yeah, I know her, but I didn't know you guys were dating, congratulations. Ray says, grabbing a champagne flute from the counter and toasting me, you guys are really cute together, I could see it from when I first met you too. I feel my back prickle. Ray's misunderstanding attracts me. It would be so much easier to just go along with it, not to argue about it and just pretend for the day. But also, I've read fake dating a use before.
I know exactly what happens when you tempt fate like that. I haven't talked to Velma about it, anyway, and last time we talked about our relationship, we'd agreed to just be friends. For now, anyway. It's the responsible thing to do. Firstly, we I met you yesterday, you can hardly say that we belong together or we're soulmates or whatever dash, I managed to stammer out. Sure. Ray raises an eyebrow. And anyway, we're not dating dash, I continue, we used to, but we're not anymore, we're just friends. No, no, I get it, you guys are keeping it low-key. Ray says, still misunderstanding, it's chill, I can keep a secret. What are you two nattering about? Shaggy asks jovially, handing me a glass of, something? It looks like a really dark and wet red wine, but it's in a whiskey glass, and it's fizzing. Drink it, it's really good. Fred brought it back from his travels in Australia. Shrugging, I do so. It can't hurt, and apparently, Australian wine is really good from what I've heard from Bernie in the travel department dash. It's just cola. I glare at Shaggy, who sniggers at me. Of course, he never changed. We were just talking about Velma. Ray informs Shaggy in a rather hushed tone that conveys far more information than his words, she's so nice, isn't she? You ship it? Shaggy gasps, same. For the last time, Velma and I are not dating. I insist, the anger starting to bubble a little as the frustration creeps into my voice. In an ideal world, yes, we would, but this isn't some fanfiction about us or a soap dedicated to our relationship, it's my life, and I'd appreciate some respect and privacy if you don't mind. I pick up one of the glasses of alcohol on the counter, I don't bother looking at what it is, and down what I can. Where's the door to the garden? I need some air. Panting, I stumbled through the city hall foyer, rushing past the security team who were too busy enjoying their morning cups of coffee to care. An absent-minded intern held the door open for me, and the receptionist helped me pick up some of the papers I had dropped after nearly barreling into her. Thanks. According to the floor plans I had checked last night, this should be the last stretch, down the way too long corridor, and the last door on the left should be the meeting room. Running down the length of the hallway seemed to take an eternity, my feet dragged through the air like it was the most viscous mud in the world. My steps pounded at the same rate as my heart yet making a dent in the distance between me and that door seemed impossible. Finally, finally, the door is within reach. With superfluous force, I slammed the door open, shouting, stop, as I did so. A room full of pasty white faces turned to me. There were a couple of variations on pallid white, like a tomato red-faced man in the too-tight suit and the rosy cheeks of the chair of the committee, 
but Maddie has more color in her pinky fingertip than the entirety of this room. Mr. Hyde rose from his seat like a furious vampire but embarrassedly sat back down again after a look from the chair. And how can we help you, young lady, the chair asked politely, you better have a good reason for interrupting a meeting like this. I do, actually. I said, step towards the chair, if I may, ma'am, could I please plead my case? Sure, just make it quick, she waved away the security force and flopped back into her seat, clearly expecting this to be rather dull. I laid out the case for her and the rest of the room, the letter we'd received from the previous owners, the strange occurrences surrounding the house, and what we'd found when we entered the house. With the help of the evidence we'd gathered and from the first-hand accounts of my friends and Fred, I told the chair the full story, or what I theorized the story to be. Essentially, Mr. Hyde and Dr. Blackwell in the 80s were looking for a house to live in and potentially start a family in. They came across the house on the corner of Claremont Road, but couldn't afford it at the time and so concocted a plan to acquire the house using malevolent actions. They decided to portray the house as haunted, and so Dr. Blackwell, an amateur historian, constructed a story about how the plot of land had been a children's home in the 1800s, fitted the house with creepy old furniture full of old money, and paid one of the neighborhood children to bury their broken toys in the backyard to plant the seed of ghosts in the community. But their plan was temporarily foiled when the Miller family bought the house first despite the rumors of hauntings, they hadn't heard them as they had lived out of state. Instead of giving up, they doubled down on their efforts and prepped the house for their arrival, setting up frozen clocks, painting and wallpapering over ominous messages, that kind of thing. They also made the most of a snowstorm locking everyone on the street inside their homes. Mr. Hyde abused his position as secretary and altered the documents, listing the house as vacant so that their rescue was significantly delayed. But do you have evidence of that? The chair asked. There's nothing in the documents you've given me that proves that. Mr. Hyde, do you mind opening your briefcase for us? Mr. Hyde, who had been turning redder and redder as I laid out the story, went even brighter. Bingo. I don't see why I should comply, he said indignantly. Victor, do as the young lady says, the chair instructed in a rather somber tone, these are accusations with serious implications, and it would be in your best interest to comply. Grumbling, Mr. Hyde opens up his briefcase and lets the original document listing the home statuses, as well as half a dozen photocopies, fall out of the briefcase. I picked up the original and showed it the chair. See, ma'am, if you look here, you'll see that a piece of paper has been stuck over the original document right where the status of number 54, the house in question, is listed. I held it up to the light, and now you can see the writing underneath spells out the truth, occupied. But that doesn't explain the erratic behavior of Mr. Miller during the snowstorm and the subsequent days.
The chair pointed out, tucking away the document into the report file of evidence I'd given her. I can explain that, miss, if I may. Shaggy stepped forwards. Mr. Miller had narcolepsy and had been taking amphetamine to treat it. Dr. Blackwell, who had been the one supplying these drugs, increased the dosage without telling him, thus causing the psychotic episodes. I thought amphetamines were safe to take long-term, the chair wondered out loud, the FDA approved them, anyway. They are if you take them in the low doses usually prescribed to patients, but I discovered this morning that Mr. Miller had been given very high amounts, equal to that of recreational use. Shaggy continued, Dr. Blackwell's secretary helped me find the pharmacy receipts to prove that. Okay, and what about the youngest son, Sam, seeing a woman inside their home at night, the chair asked, making notes of what we were saying, was that Dr. Blackwell? Yes, ma'am, it was. Fred, this time, stepped forwards, I went to talk to the locksmith and found out that Dr. Blackwell had asked him to make a copy of the key to number 54 not long before the snowstorm. According to some of the neighbors, they had seen someone fitting Dr. Blackwell's description entering and exiting the home at all hours of the day, but mostly at night. Did no one report it to the police? The chair seemed particularly antsy about this point. You'd hope that the neighbors would care at least a little about. Most assumed the house was still empty, Dash Fred explained, and those that knew the family also knew that Mr. Miller had narcolepsy and assumed that Dr. Blackwell had been called to help him as he tended to hurt himself by accident. Right. The chair paused to finish writing her notes, then turned to us once more to ask, and what about the more recent reports of hauntings and the photos you mentioned? Those aren't real, you honor, Daphne said, handing over her stack of photos, the ghost in them, that is. Just call me chairwoman, young lady, the chair replied, flicking through the photos she had been provided, and how exactly are these fakes? Well, I can only guess, but I researched it and talked to the local theater riggers, so I believe Mr. Hyde set up an amateur version of an automated rigging system using his old fishing equipment. Daphne suggested, in the photo of the ghost, you'll see that there is a fly line behind them. Oh, and the ghost is wearing the mask and vampire costume that were on sale last year at the costume store. Well then, the chair put down her pen and picked up her gavel. I think I speak for everyone when I say, Mr. Hyde, you cannot purchase number 54, Claremont Road. Also, you are not a good person, you messed up an innocent family's life just because you wanted a house to be a little cheaper. Meeting adjourned. Chapter 42 Fury boils my blood as I stormed out of the house leaves crunching in a rather satisfying manner beneath my feet. The cold air smacking me in the face does cool my temper somewhat, but not enough to head back inside and face my demons. Fred and Shaggy's garden is a little overgrown, what you expect from a suburban family. 
A white picket fence marks out the boundaries on all sides, both left and right lead to the backyard of the houses next door, but the fence parallel to the house separates the house from a nature reserve. I can't see far into it despite the sunlight as the tall line of trees blocks most of my vision. The trees and bushes in the garden are dwarfed by blustering giants of trees on the other side of the fence, making the entire house feel like a dollhouse that wouldn't look out of place in Alexi's room. A little swing set, clearly made with Alexi in mind, gently rocks in the breeze. There's a bench on the patio by the door, but its rotting wood was not very appealing, so I instead opted for the slightly damp grass. Music and idle chatter bubble out from the house, filling the garden with a melancholic soundtrack of solitude. If the sun had already set, I could imagine this scene fitting in perfectly in a coming-of-age movie. The protagonist comes out to sit in the garden while the party continues inside, and their love interest, or sometimes best friend, sits with them to calm them down. The voices and music from inside get louder as the door opens, then slightly muffled once more as the door closes. What gives them the right to dash? Daphne? Oh. I raise my empty glass to the figure approaching from behind me, here. Velma sits down next to me, placing her plate on the ground between us. The plate seemed to signify a boundary between us. It's such a small action, putting the plate between us, but it comes across as a line in the sand, although whether it's to stop her or me is unclear. She doesn't say anything, she doesn't ask about how I'm feeling or why I'm out here. Her quiet understanding is more than enough to quench the last flames of anger. How long are you staying for? she asks, not looking at me. Her eyes are fixed on the bird feeder hanging on one of the trees. Until the day before Christmas Eve. You're not even staying for Christmas, her face crumples slightly with disappointment. I mean, I figured you weren't staying for New Year's, but not you can't go that early. Sorry. I have to cover for one of my co-workers. I say apologetically, and what do you mean I can't go? You're not going to hold me hostage, are you? She doesn't laugh at my half-assed attempt at a joke, but I had so many things planned for us to do together. You could have helped me decorate a tree or the apartment or the bakery for Christmas, we could have wrapped presents together. We could have made Christmas cookies to give out to our neighbors. We could have made soup for the poor and hungry Dash. Why does Christmas have to be such a busy time filled with activities? I just want to spend some time with the people I care about if I want to do anything at all. My ideal Christmas Eve or Christmas Day would just be sitting by a fireplace with maybe some alcohol and my cats and the people I love around me. Velma, we can do all of those things you want to do, but we just have slightly less time to do them in. I offer, also, why are you talking about us like we're a couple? They're your neighbors, your apartment, your bakery, not ours. 
You know what I meant, she says quietly, adding more cheerfully after a pause, want something? I just picked up some random things from the buffet. Thanks. I pick up one of the small sandwiches, a tuna and mayo one I think. Velma also picks up one of the sandwiches, egg cress, and places the plate to her left. The boundary is gone. She scoots up next to me so that our arms brush against each other like shy lovers whenever we move. Not that I think Velma and I are lovers. Just, yeah. Do you remember how we used to have picnics in the clearing? She asks. We would go in all weather, wouldn't we? Snow, rain, sunshine, all of it. Velma gets that far away look that by now I'd become accustomed to. I wonder what she's thinking about now. Is she remembering our numerous picnics? The first one, when it had snowed? The ones when we'd gone stargazing? The one in which Shaggy accidentally fell into the river and needed Fred to rescue and cuddle him to keep him warm? The last one, as painful as the memory is? Or is she remembering the mysteries we solved? The time we thought Shaggy and Scooby had been kidnapped? What about when Fred fell back down the stairs in shock? The time Andy made us take tetanus tests after Daphne slipped and cut her finger on a rusty spade, he was very much a hypochondriac? The countless other shenanigans we got up to? I don't know. I'm not going to ask either. Whatever goes on in Velma's head, as interesting as it would be to peer inside, should stay there unless she wants to let them spill out. If that were the case, it would be her prerogative, not mine. Instead, I let the bubbling voices and music and the cooling breeze fill in the silence. We both daydreamed our time away, neither of us daring to say anything. After an eternity and a half, Velma is the first to move. She takes my hands and just holds them. I'm cold, she says simply. Smiling, I let my head rest on her shoulder, this is nice. Hmm. Ray, Shaggy, and Fred are no doubt gathered around one of the windows, jumping up and down with delight that one of their ships had gotten a little closer, but I didn't care. I'd brushed off double-takes, homophobic slurs, and creepy looks for this woman last time we dated, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Not that this is going to lead to a relationship. Because we agreed the responsible thing would be to not date again. If only responsible also made you euphoric beyond reason. Deputy Bucky came along shortly after the committee decision. He already had Dr. Blackwell in the back of his police car, looking particularly grouchy and grumpy, and Mr. Hyde was set to promptly join her. Mr. Hyde also looked ticked off, but he seemed more desperate to escape his situation than Dr. Blackwell did. Dr. Blackwell was angry, sure, but angry in the manner of how dare you mildly inconvenience me rather than the get-your-hands-off-me kind of anger that Mr. Hyde was displaying.
I'm not entirely sure why we're arresting you, but I've been told you need to come with me, so. Deputy Bucky said, sweat pouring from his body out of sheer nervousness. Bless him, I don't think he's ever had to arrest anyone before. Not in this tiny town anyway. We would have gotten away with it, too dash. Mr. Hyde screamed as he was led to the cop car if it hadn't been for you you meddling kids. We waited for the car to disappear before starting to celebrate. I hugged Daphne joyously, jumping in time to her as I did so. I also gave Shaggy and Scooby both high fives and a Scooby snack each. Fred looked at me with puppy eyes, so for once, I obliged and also gave him a high five. This doesn't mean that you're part of Mystery Incorporated, by the way. I said, sticking my tongue out at him, it just means I tolerate you a little bit. For now. He protested, but gave up within moments, knowing it's a futile argument at this point, and that I'm only really doing it to piss him off. Shaggy bumped his shoulder endearingly, which I suppose is somewhat comforting. I don't know, boys are confusing. Not nearly as confusing as Daphne, but that's for different reasons. Is she straight? We never really had the conversation, so I don't think she knows that I'm not. So, is she a straight girl being a straight girl, playfully flirting with her friends? Does she realize I like might like her, and is just teasing me about it? Or, maybe, does she like me back? Not that I like her. Shaggy and Fred vanished at some point between the shoulder bump and me being lost in my thoughts, leaving Daphne, Maddie, Scooby and me outside City Hall, scratching our heads. Daphne, with a knowing look in her eye, suggested that we all head home. It doesn't look like Fred and Shaggy have gone back to school and we wouldn't want them to get in trouble. And we can't exactly send Maddie back to school after we told them that she was ill. I added, and there's no way you're going to be at home by yourself. I'd manage. I've been home alone by myself before. Maddie said cheerfully, Dad sometimes had to go do business at night, and he wouldn't come home until the next evening. Daphne and I shared a look. Well, we're not your dad, so we're all going to go to Velma's yes, you too, Scooby and make something for lunch. Daphne urged, pushing us down the path, come on, let's go. As Fred was the only one with keys to the Mystery Incorporated van, we had no way of getting all of our belongings locked inside. I was the only one who still had my backpack, as I had taken it with me into the library, but I didn't have enough money to cover all our bus fares, so we ended up having to walk the nearly two miles between my house and City Hall. Somehow, I was the most in shape out of all four of us, despite having already run from the library to City Hall. Scooby was coping, but we did have to take breaks now and then so that he could catch up, he was almost an old dog by that point. Daphne had, of course, decided to wear heels that morning, 
and had within minutes opted to walk barefooted instead. I'm not breaking my ankles or the heels just because Fred decided to fuck off Dash. I reflexively cover Maddie's ears. With Shaggy. Daphne grumbled, he owes us one after this, doesn't he? Hmm. Do you want to put your shoes in my backpack? I uncovered Maddie's ears and slid the backpack off of my back onto my arm, save you carrying them the whole way there. Thanks, Daphne smiled graciously and placed the heels into my bag. They dug into my back a little, but I pushed the pain out of my mind. I'm just helping a friend, I told myself. Halfway home, Maddie started to stumble on her steps. I took off my backpack and placed them on her shoulders. Stooping down, I gesture for her to climb on. She seemed uncertain, as though she wasn't sure she could fully trust me, but some coaxing from Daphne gave her that last boost of confidence needed. Maddie clambered on, and I shifted her weight about until it felt comfortable. Ready? I asked Maddie, mischief on my mind having already exchanged glances with Daphne. I felt Maddie nod into my neck, hold on. As fast as I could, I sprinted down the street. Naturally, Daphne joined in on the chase with Scooby at her heels. Maddie squealed with delight, her arms wrapped tightly around my neck. Daphne hooped as she momentarily overtook me. Too busy glancing behind at us and gloating, she doesn't notice the loose pavement tile, causing her to stumble just long enough for us to overtake her once and for all. I let Maddie hop off and we waited a few seconds for Daphne and Scooby to catch up before reaching out and touching the lamppost. We won, Maddie. I cheered, in your face, Daphne. Laughing, Daphne and I shook hands in a show of good showmanship. And with that, we were off again. Maddie climbed onto my back, and Scooby was carried the rest of the way home. Maddie was fairly light on my back, too light almost, so it was no real bother to carry her the rest of the way home. I have to make sure this girl gets more to eat, I thought to myself, I don't think I could live by myself if anything happened to her, especially while she's in my care. Chapter 43 Should we head back inside? I suggest, it's a bit cold out here. Velma nods. I stand up first, offering a hand to Velma to help her up. She takes it, causing tingles to run up and down my arm, and I pull her up off the ground with a bit too much force. Velma stumbles a little, careering straight into my shoulder, knocking both of us back to the ground again with a thud. Laughing, I help her up again, more gently this time, and dust myself off. Danger-prone Daphne strikes again. Velma jokes, prompting me to pose like a superhero, making her laugh even more. God, I love that laugh. Just a laugh, though. Not the woman that sourced it.
Just a laugh. Yep. It's so pretty, that laugh. It's this wondrously light bubbling and comforting sound, like soup simmering on a cold rainy day. It fills the air around me with warmth and joy, it seems to intoxicate me. I feel untouchable. The iciness of the party had dissipated, replaced with some more welcoming vibes. It's like being a small child again, wrapped in the softest, coziest blanket in the house on Christmas Day, waiting for your parents to wake up so you can open your presents. It's like magic, that laugh. I hadn't realized how much I missed it until now. You all right, Daphne? Velma asks, breaking my train of thought, you seem a bit spaced out. I've missed you. I can't resist it. I pull Velma into a hug, burying my face into her shoulder. She hesitates, pausing before she puts her arms around my neck. I missed you, too, she whispers into my neck. She mumbles something else, but it's too quiet for me to catch the words. Stepping back, I glanced at her face, what did you dash? Velma turns away from me, picks up a handful of frosty leaves that were piled up in the corner of the garden and lets them fall onto my head like autumnal confetti. Hey Dash. Obviously, I had to reciprocate after shaking the leaves out of my hair. Like children, we fervently stuff icy leaves down each other's shirt, rub them in each other's faces, and push each other onto the pile of leaves. We play with the leaves, scattering them about the place until our fingers are blocks of ice wrapped in skin and our cheeks are flush from the exertion. Velma pushes me into the pile first, the leaves cushioning my fall despite their damp coolness. When she offers me her hand to help me up, I jerk her hand towards me, so she falls into the pile of leaves right after me. We lie next to each other, staring at the boughs of the tree hanging over us. Her laugh, that incredibly beautiful laugh, rings through the air once more. I wish I could bottle this feeling and take it back to New York with me. It would be a shining beacon protecting me from the cold of the apartment, or Matthew's predatory nature, or the imminent threat of being laid off. But let's be honest, Velma and I could never date. She doesn't want to, and can't, live in New York, and there's no way I'm living in Crystal Cove. I don't know how Velma does it. Of the four of us, Velma was the one who wanted to leave this place the most, closely followed by me, yet she's the only one who's still stuck here. Even Shaggy left Crystal Cove and considering he never wanted to move out of his parents' place, that's pretty impressive. She must have left for college, though, since there's nowhere near here that does culinary training, as far as I'm aware. The math doesn't quite add up when I think about it. Velma said she studied for six years before getting the bakery, plus one year as an apprentice, and had the bakery for a few years now. 
which means that there's nearly a decade between since the last time I saw her and when she started studying to be a baker. What was she doing during that time? That's far too long a period to simply be the result of her taking a gap year or something, so she had to have been doing something. I shift slightly so were I to I, Velma, can I ask you a question? Hmm, yeah, she said with a slight smirk, she leaned forwards and flicked my nose, you just did. I'm kidding, go on. What did you do after I left Crystal Cove? I ask, I'm guessing you didn't go straight into the bakery business. Oh, I went to Stanford for physics and became a tenured professor there, she says nonchalantly, as though she was describing her morning routine, it was pretty fun, they had some good halls of residence and the catering was all right. You what, sorry? Just as I said those words, the back door to Fed and Shaggy's house bursts open as Cheese bounds through it, with some of her puppies trailing behind her, accompanied by Alexi, holding the remaining puppies. I see Fred, Shaggy, and Ray standing by the door with identical looks of panic on their faces. Hurriedly, they slam the door on themselves, ducking below the pane of glass in the door. I stifle a laugh at the thought of the three of them, crammed into the space between the wall and the counter by the door, trying desperately not to be seen. It's too amusing to cause me any more anger, although they will eventually get an earful about this. Ante Velma Alexi calls out, look at these puppies, aren't they adorable? What are you doing in the leaf pile? She tuts kicking some of the leaves we'd moved from the pile in the vague direction of the original pile, you shouldn't make a mess in the garden when the gardener is on holiday, you know. That's all right, we can clean it up. Velma says soothingly, placing her hands onto Alexi's shoulders, plus, look, the puppies like playing in it. Alexi's face lights up immediately. She lets the puppies that she's holding join the ones on the ground, watching with delight as they shuffled about playing with the leaves. I never understood why people want children. They're expensive, sticky, and just generally a pain to deal with, but watching Alexi, I think I get it. Just like with Maddie, I would protect this child with my life. Only, I'd have to do a better job than last time. Right, well, what do we already know about our mystery? I asked the crew. We were back in our club room, the abandoned one that Fred had thrown stuff about in last year, and scratching our heads over the mystery. The school had let us redecorate the room, even giving us a small budget to allow us to do so something about it looking good on the prospectus to have an ambitious and involved club, so it no longer looked completely abandoned. The walls had been given a new lick of paint, the floor had been fully hoovered and decluttered. Daphne and I had even installed some bookshelves on the wall while the boys bickered about the best way to carry a filing cabinet up the stairs. It didn't look too bad if I do say so myself. 
we'd put some memorabilia from our past mysteries on one of the shelves. The magic book that Fred had planted in the library, a picture frame with a photo of the five of us at the gala, the pack of cards from Andy's mansion, we may have forgotten to return that, a Star Wars figurine that Melissa had given me to apologize about the notebook incident, and the mask from the figure in the Claremont Roadhouse. I don't really know why the police let us have it, but they did. On one of the other shelves, we had a binder folder for each of the mysteries solved, except for Melissa's one, which had a report file as Melissa had insisted on writing it up herself. Inside each of the binder folders was all of the evidence gathered and how we came to the conclusions that we did. One of the files, the one about the school, lay open on the desk. Its papers were scattered about the table as we were just rooting through every tidbit of information we had. Unlike with other cases, we had way too much information and evidence than we could handle. Normally, we are clambering over ourselves to gather the information that's relevant to the case, but with this one, so many pieces of information overlap and contradict each other, it's like we're solving eight different mysteries at once. Okay, so, you weren't the only one to see the figure and hear the whistling, Daphne started, Hannah from our chemistry class also heard and saw it dash. Yeah, but Mr. Matthews in Woodshop said that that was just the groundskeeper, Shaggy interjected, their best friends, he would know. But the groundskeeper isn't in on Tuesdays, I pointed out, the figure has only been spotted on Tuesdays. We don't know that the figure is related to the scream, though, they just happen to both be near the old special ed classrooms. Fred said, rather dismissively, look, ladies, we can't be jumping to conclusions here. The rest of us all shot him daggers before continuing our conversation, making sure to ignore any further input from Fred. Is there anything in the school's history that could explain this? I asked, does something special happen on Tuesdays? Taco Tuesday? Scooby suggested. Anything else? I prompted, guys, I only moved here at the start of the year, you're going to have to help me out here. If you want, I can try to sneak into the receptionist's office or butter up the librarian to get some information. Daphne suggested, the librarian is probably as old as the school itself. Mrs. Green is 61. She retires next year. I pointed out, about to add that she could hardly be called as old as the school until Daphne remarked that it only proved her point. Rolling my eyes, I continued, any rituals the members of staff or people nearby do? Hayden lives down the road and does elevenses every Tuesday. Shaggy stated, he lets us join, doesn't he, Scooby? Do you ever attend a full day of school? I couldn't help but ask, you're always stepping out for this and that, so you always seem to be late to or even miss a lesson. Shaggy shrugged, I go to all the classes I need to go to. Which should be all of them? Shaggy didn't respond, 
so I continued once more. Okay, how about this groundskeeper guy? What do we know about him? Mr. Matthews and he are very good friends. Shaggy said again, he's a Pisces Dash. We can't trust him. Daphne said immediately, pausing prior to adding, sorry, my mum's recently got me into horoscopes after I told her about Andy's mystery. Hey. Fred interjected once more, but I'm a Pisces. Hmm, I figured. Daphne said, turning to us once again, should we go talk to Dash? What's that supposed to mean? Fred, as dramatic as ever, bounded from his seat and started ranting around Daphne, I thought, but you're a Gemini. You're arguably the worst star sign, what do you mean I figured? As Fred continued to rant angrily at her, Daphne swatted him away like a particularly annoying fly and kept talking, do you want to go talk to the groundskeeper? It seems like we might get some good insight from that. Maybe, I'm not sure yet, we don't want to spark any suspicion, I replied, pointing to Daphne, we should definitely talk to the librarian, though. Okay, so what's the plan? Shaggy asked, handing me the meeting minutes, feel free to add it at the bottom of the sheet. The minutes are fairly accurate, so I don't bother altering it other than continuing the game of hangman in the corner and noting that Fred had been a pain in the ass again. Course of action, I recited while writing, Daphne, sneak into the receptionist's office and gather information about Tuesdays and maybe something about the school's history? Nothing too specific, this is just some background research work. Coolio, Daphne said, writing it down in her purple planner to remind herself. Shaggy, talk to Mr. Matthews about the groundskeeper. I instructed, watching as he tried to write everything I said on his hand, keep it casual, though, just ask about him in general. Any weird hobbies, favorite foods, does he have any family, that kind of thing? Maybe make it sound like you're planning a surprise party to say thank you or something. Good, got it, Shaggy confirms. And for me, go talk to the librarian. I motioned to put the lid on my pen to signify the end of our meeting until I noticed Fred's pleading face. I'm tempted to use this opportunity to get back at him once again, but something tells me not to, and finally, for Fred, you can go talk to the head teacher to see whether or not he can give us any more information. Fred's face lights up like a Christmas tree, really? Really. Thank you, he made a show of writing it down in his notebook, which he had been doodling. On throughout the meeting, capping his pen with a flourish. Daphne shot me a smile of approval, sending butterflies straight to my stomach. God, the things I do for this girl. Even though she's not even my girlfriend. Not that I wish she was, right? <laughs>